Oh, I'm excited for this one today, folks. A family affair on today's podcast as we welcome Don Abbott, a pioneer in radio, TV, and advertising, working for an assortment of stations, including Wish TV, before founding his own audiovisual production company. But I'm lucky enough to have him as a great uncle, too. Uncle Don, welcome to the program, my man. Hey, Jimmy, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. You bet. And I'm I'm really excited to get to talk to somebody that's been involved with radio and TV as long as you have been. Can you tell me what kind of got you interested in doing it as a career? Oh, my goodness. It dates back to my farmhood uh, experience. I was raised on a farm, a 400-acre farm, and I had two older brothers, so I was kind of a loner. Right. And uh, I got interested in electronics. And I decided that I wanted to be a, a, a radio engineer, and I took that up, and that sort of failed. So I went into being an amateur radio operator at the age of nine years old. <laughs> and uh, then I hung around the radio station in my hometown uh, for so long that they had to hire me. I finally told them that they needed the best boy to run the errands and all that other stuff. And... Uh, they opened it up, and uh, I got the job. And shortly thereafter, I got my first radio show, which was called Don's Den. And I think I was 16 years old. I did school news, and I played this new music called rock and roll. <laughs> and, of course, uh, <laughs> everybody snubbed their nose at rock and roll. Oh, yeah. But uh, that's how I kind of got involved in it, and and it became infectious. It became a uh, a good disease and it sort of buried in me. So I decided that would be a good career. Yeah. Uh, I elected not to go to college, which was my father's disappointment. But I told him if I go out and, and I try the radio experience and TV experience for a couple of years and I don't make it, I'll come back and go to college. I never mm-hmm. did because I just went from station to station and finally wound up with my own production company. And take me through what, because you at one point had um, a radio operator uh, license. What was the testing? Um, what was it, what were the steps involved in getting that certification? You mean the ham radio? Yeah, the where you went. You went to that uh, that room, and you know everyone was taking a test, and it seemed like everybody was older than you. You were like fifteen when you tried to get the uh, the license for the first time. Actually, I was nine years old. Nine, okay. Uh, and, nine. At, and at that time, you had to uh, you had to copy you had to send and receive Morse code uh, yeah. at five words a minute, and then take a uh, radio theory test. So my brother took me over to Columbus, Ohio, about sixty miles from where we live, and I uh, walked into a room of guys who were about a hundred and three, <laughs> and uh, I sat down. And the first thing we did was to take the, the code test, send yeah. and receive five words a minute. And we finally got done, and the guy said, okay, those who pass the code test, I'm going to call out their names, and then they can take the written test. So the first, me being Abbott, that uh, was the first guy on the list. And the guy said, uh, why don't you take the technician license rather than the novice license? And I said, well, that requires code at 25 words a minute, not... I don't think I'd do that. He said, well, you just sat and received at 30 words a minute, so why don't you do that? So I did. Yeah. 
I wound up with an amateur radio operator's license. Um, had my rig sort of hidden from everybody, and I would come downstairs from my room, and I'd say, hey, I just talked to a guy in England, and my parents would say, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> go, go to bed, get a lot of sleep. Uh, anyway, one day uh, in the winter, we had a knock on the door. It was a reporter from the Columbus Dispatch, and he said, I want to interview Don Abbott. My dad said, what for? And he said, well, as far as we know, he's the youngest amateur radio operator in the United States and maybe even the world. <laughs> so that's how I got involved. Did you ever get that verified that you were, in fact, the youngest operator in the country? Yeah, I never did because I never really cared. <laughs> it was, oh. it was, you know that was a that was a grown up thing. I didn't care about that. I just wanted to go mess around with electronics for a while. So, but I had bells and buzzers and and uh, chemistry sets and oh my god, everything. Uh, I I could have blown up that house. I think because <laughs> my little laboratory was in the basement, and people would say, "Where's Don? Oh, he's down there. He's doing something. We don't know." But. Uh, that was that was kind of it, and I I got uh, you know I got into broadcasting with that first radio show, and then when I graduated from high school, I departed my hometown and got my first real job. Yeah. At a my my first radio station in my hometown was a thousand watts. I thought you could hear that around the world. <laughs> and uh, then my second job was at a two hundred and fifty water. And then I went to Youngstown, Ohio, on the 250 water. And then I went to Iowa. I went to work for a 5,000-watt station. And, of course, the more the wattage meant, the more you could be discovered. Yeah. So uh, there was a second station there that was 50,000 watts. Wow. And then we broadcast. We got fan mail from Chile, Labrador, oh, my God, all over the world. And... Uh, one day, I got a call uh, while I was on the air from a guy by the name of Mike Joseph. And Mike was uh, in the business of, of transforming what we call block radio programming into rock and roll stations. And uh -huh. he said, how would you like to go to work in Indianapolis? And I said, uh, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. <laughs> that's how I wound up in Indy. Now... Your first event was kind of a VIP red carpet event. Is that correct for when you got here to Indianapolis? Is that right? Oh, yeah. I got to tell you that story. Yeah. Of course, all of us coming into the, the new format, us rock and roll disc jockeys, uh -huh. uh, all the old timers were not too happy about us coming in. <laughs> and the station was a CBS station at the time, carrying soap operas and all that. So the program director decided that he would get one up on the new guy. And he said, uh, Don, I, the opening of Cinerama is going to be at the Indiana Theater. This was 1959, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want you to interview all the celebrities there, the mayor, the governor, and all that, for the premiere of Cinerama, and it'll be a CBS feed. So I said, okay. So I'm heading down there. And I was about to meet up with my engineer, Al Laval, at the time. He had all the gear set up. And it occurred to me, I wouldn't know the mayor if he kicked me in the butt. And I wouldn't know the <laughs> governor either. I wouldn't know anybody. Yeah. 
so uh, Sid Collins, who was the chief announcer on the 500, mm. and Wally Neerling, who was the morning guy on WIRE at the time, uh, I explained my dilemma. And I said, hey, you got to help me out. So they said, okay, you stand between Wally and Sid, and uh, Wally will turn them over to you by saying, thank you, Mayor Barton. And he'll turn them over to you. And if you didn't get that, you just pass them on to Sid. Sid will interview him and say, thank you, Mayor Barton, and send it back to me. Yeah. Well, it worked. And the next day, the program director said, hey, you did a pretty good job down there. And I said, well, you don't think I would do it without my uh, homework, do you? Yeah. He said, and he said, uh, I said, I said, sir, I respect you but don't ever put me in that box again. And so that was it. And later I saved his job. So that was cool. Well, and you know, I was reading about that event and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you believe in fate Don? Because it was that <laughs> night that you met uh, Betty, aunt Betty. Actually, I didn't meet her Jimmy that night. Oh, okay. I later on found out that she was an usherette. Okay. With their girlfriends at Cinerama's opening, and I didn't, I didn't meet her until many years later. I met her, I think, in 1965 when she was working at the airport. But um, still, an odd coincidence. The, the other strange thing was that every Saturday, I would go to lunch with my boss and a. Uh, an editor of the Indianapolis Times, that was way before you, his name was Irving Leibowitz, and we would always get together and we would go to Shapiro's for lunch on Saturday before I went on to my radio show. And I found out later that Betty's father also went to that restaurant on Saturdays for lunch. Uh. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was fate. There was no question about it. I mean that's that's just um, it shows you just how small the the world really is. But going back to um, your first kind of major gig uh, with radio, I read that you um, only made about two hundred fifty dollars a month total before taxes. Um, what <laughs> yeah. what money management advice would you have for folks that are wanting to go into this industry? Because it's still kind of that way where you have to be a little bit careful about how you spend your money. Well, I'll tell you this story, uh, and it's a, it's not a very long story. The first radio station I worked for, I worked for minimum wage. And at that time, Jimmy, believe it or not, it was 75 cents an hour. You're kidding. And no. So I got my first job uh, at uh, Massillon, Ohio. And the guy hired me for $250 a month. Mm. And I thought, well, that's more than I'm making a year. Well, I can tell you, 250 a month didn't go around very long. Uh, my next job, after I got fired at that one, because I was the morning man and decided sleep was more important than the job. Uh, my next job was in Youngstown, Ohio. Right. And, and Youngstown was a huge market for record testing and all that stuff. So they paid a little bit more than, uh, than Maslin or Cambridge. So, um, I auditioned for the job at WHOT in Youngstown, and uh, uh, the guy said, okay, let's talk money. And I said, well, 
I'm making 250 now and I won't take a penny less. Mm. And he said, well, I'm going to have to talk to my partner about that. I don't know. And I said, what the hell? 250 is not going to break him up. And uh, so finally he came to me and he said, okay, I'll tell you what, we're going to pay you the 250, but you can't tell anybody else what you make here at the station. Right. Okay, fine. <laughs> so I was on the air the first week and the bookkeeper came in across the console, handed me an envelope and winked at me and I opened it up and it was a check for 200 and I think $32 or something like that. And I thought, boy, this is great because they pay up front. Wow. I'll be able to buy more than a hot dog. The second week, the same thing happened. The third week, the same thing happened. Oh. And then it struck, it struck me. I was talking a month and they were talking a week. So I went from, oh my God, 250 a month. Hang on, times 12, $3,000. I went from three to over $10,000 a year. Yeah. So that was when I turned into a radio personality. I was no longer <laughs> an announcer. <laughs> you, you finally had the financial security to, uh, to open yourself up a little bit more as an air personality, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I tell you, I was still the morning man. And I, I could not wake up in the morning. And I'll tell you, it was three strikes and you're out at those stations. If you were late three times to your shift, uh, you were just gone. Right. That's what happened to my first job. So I didn't want that to happen again. So I hired the guy. Excuse me. I hired the guy to come to my room in a rooming house and wake me up and drive me to the station every morning at 5.30. And I said to him, Sandy, knock on the door, and if I say, I'm okay, I'm going to drive myself this morning, break in, because I lie in my sleep. <laughs> is, that one of, um, is that one of the benefits of being retired now, just having the option to sleep in? Ha, I never sleep in anymore. I go to you bed don't? at 11.30 at night. I, I go to bed 11.30 at night, and I'm up usually in the office by quarter to 7 or 6.30 or something like that. Every every morning person that I talk to, the first thing that they say when they retire, it's it's such a blessing to be able to sleep in, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not really retired. I'm just getting started. That's that's the attitude to have right there. You know, I, I was wondering, <laughs> you, you've done a lot in, in your career, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of it, but... Um, you were part of the, uh, Indianapolis press club, um, the Indianapolis, uh, advertising club. Um, I, I hope I'm getting that term right. If not, uh, yeah. you can correct me, but what, what are some things that, uh, you still want to do at this point in your life? Oh, well, I want to write, uh, more, yeah. um, you know, one of the greatest pleasures I've had in my life is for the past 36 years. I have done a motivational program called Positive Changes for a Positive Tomorrow, mm -hmm. and actually have done that all over the United States and and in many foreign countries. Um, I'm currently working on a book based on that speech. Um, I was in uh, Kansas City about three, four years ago, and I was giving my program, which has been the same program for 
36 years. Right. I figure it's a, lot easier, it's a lot easier to get a new audience than it is to get a new speech. So um, I'm giving a speech, and this guy walked up to me afterwards, and he said, uh, you know, you should write a book about your speech. I've seen you talk now about four times, and I think it'd be a good idea if you wrote a book about the speech. And I said, oh, yeah, I thought about that, but, you know, I've never had the time. He said, well, here's my card. Call me when you get a chance. So I put it in my briefcase. When I got back home, I looked at the card and it found out he was chairman of the board of Marlboro Books in New York. And I called him and I said, were you serious? And he said, yeah, I was. And he said, uh, if you're serious, we'd like to send you a contract and a retainer. And we'd like to have you write the book. Hmm. And about three or four days later, Federal Express came and I opened up a envelope and a, had a check in there for $25,000. <laughs> and an envelope with a contract. And I called him and I said, I think you've got the decimal point in the wrong place here. And he said, no. Uh, did you read the contract? And I said, no, nah, I haven't read it yet. What he said, basically, what the contract means is if the your book turns into a movie or if you write another book, we have to first write a book. And I said, okay, fine. So I got a, uh, I got a agent. Uh, and they signed me uh, uh, a person at the book company. Yeah. She ca she called one day and she said, we can't use the title of the book. And I said, positive changes for a positive tomorrow. What's wrong with that? She said, well, we print that on the spine of a book, and we have people come by and we say, without looking inside that book, what do you think it's about? And over 90% said either finance or politics. So she said, we have to come up with a different title. Right. So so I called her back in about two months, and I said, okay, I've got the title. I hope you like it. She said, what is it? And I said, the title is How Great Could You Be If You Weren't In Your Way? I like that. Yeah. And so that's, that's the title of the new book. So you were asking me, what do I want to do? I want to continue doing a lot of TV. I've got some ideas for some documentaries. Uh, continue flying the airplane. We'll talk about that in a little while. That's right. And yeah. uh, and write this book, and then I want to write a new speech based on that book. And hopefully, I can steer some people in the right direction. So that'd be good. Hey, speaking of books, sure. You know, I I wrote my memoirs, Your Soul, Ohio. Yes. And I wrote My Flight Affair, which is the Adventures of a Master Pilot. But I talked about being back on that farm and how I was raised on a 400-acre farm. Yeah. And uh, if I can read you a little passage from the book about that farm and farm life, I think it would help out, okay? No, I'd love that. Go ahead. So I said there are so many good things to remember about being on that farm, like holiday gatherings with friends and relatives. Who could forget my mother's elaborate festive meals? In that category, Thanksgiving was king with Christmas dinner at close second. I think about all the animals running free of the winter snow, unaffected by the laughter and screams of children bobsledding down steep hills huh. on a sheet of corrugated tin. I remember the family tradition of selecting the perfect Christmas tree from our own land and decorating with handmade strings of popcorn and cranberries offset by sprinkles of silver tinsel from the 10 cent store. It was always a thrill to sort through the old cardboard box of keepsake ornaments and strings of colored lights that went 
out if one bulb burned out. I remember discovering and replacing those elusive bulbs. It was a matter of challenge and victory. I vividly recall the tranquility generated by staring into a fireplace full of glowing embers on a cold winter morning. And I still remember soft feather beds and pillows, the sound of the dinner bell and playing cards with my mom while waiting for dad to come home. Yeah. Those experiences and many more, along with hard work, faith, and love for each other, held our family together. And we didn't realize it then, but those were the good times. That's kind of the farm life. Yeah. Did you ever think about wanting to relocate to a farm again, since you had lived there as a kid? Oh, <laughs> I thought about it, but, uh, you know, I relocated to an island. Yeah. And that, I guess that's about as close as you could be. I mean, I'm three miles out in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So when the hurricane comes, we know it. Yeah, you you can <laughs> you can anticipate it a, a little bit, but um, your your production company was originally founded um, in Indianapolis. What kind of services did uh, that company provide for clients? We started out um, we started out by producing um, major sales meetings for big companies like. Eli Lilly and AT&T and Sarah Lee and some other great clients. These were extravaganzas put on every year. There were sales meetings for their entire sales staff. And we would have an audience of maybe 2,000, 3,000 people. And we produced these shows on uh, multiple screens, maybe five screens with, oh, 50 projectors and dancers and singers and, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. We did our own custom. We did our own custom music. Uh, we composed a lot of music. In fact, Skeet Bushel did a lot of our tracks there. He worked with your dad. You remember? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. He did. That's right. So we did those multi-image presentations. Uh, they were all uh, sequenced by hand. We had a scored script, and we would sit there, three or four of us, and push the buttons on various projectors. And so that uh, that really was the uh, the inspiration to invent the first computer ever to handle all those projectors called the program director, yeah. and uh, that was w- one of my first inventions. And a lot of these programs, uh, what people would probably know it as, uh, you know, late at night, it, what you created was kind of that paid programming uh, infomercial type programming, yes. Similar to oh, that? Yeah, that was later that was later on when we added our uh, audio studios and then we added our television production. Right. And we were pion- we were pioneers in the infomercial business. Um, there was hardly anybody doing it. I mean, all the advertising agents none of the advertising agencies wanted to do that because they thought it was a, a dirt overcoat paper. It was the worst form of advertising. And we made a science out of it. It was really, really great at and uh, fortunately, uh, being the pioneers in that business, we were um, we were kind of the the number one company everybody would go to right. to get an infomercial done. And so, at one time, I think we had about twenty five products on the air at the same time. Mm. So not not a ton of uh, competition. And another thing that I had read. Um, about your company too, uh, your company was in charge of a show about Indianapolis the day that the original convention center opened up. Yeah. 
Yes, that was one of our first multimedia presentations. Mayor right. Richard Luger came to me and said, we need to do this show all about life in Indianapolis, and we want to do it at the convention center. And uh, he said, that's the good news. I said, what's the bad news? He said, well, <laughs> the bad news is that we only have about a month to do it. Oh, wow. So we sent crews out on the street to interview people uh, with film crews and uh, audio, and we put in a huge exhibit that actually took about, I'm going to say 45 minutes to go through the exhibit with major, major audiovisual presentations. And uh, it was called The Indianapolis Show. And uh, later, Eli Lilly, uh, their foundation, used a miniature version of that program to attract new business to Indy. Would someone be able to find it through streaming, or is it one of those things that's just deep within the vault uh, of your house somewhere? Uh, oh, gosh, I think it's deep within the vault. It may have died a natural death. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I bet it was cool to get to interact with all of these different politicians, though. I mean, you know, when you start out in media, you kind of want to be a little bit famous, but to actually get to interact with the movers and shakers of a of a city and state, that's pretty cool to eventually uh, get to tell that story to everybody. Well, I, I had the experience of being able to, to meet and become close with a lot of people. I yeah. mean, uh, gosh, I spent all night with Judy Garland. No way. Uh, just, just sitting and talking wow. uh, in a big snowstorm. And uh, later on, Liza Minnelli and I were doing a, an event, and uh, she she told me that her mother had remembered uh, that night that we spent together. It was cool. <laughs> I I do remember you saying too in your book, uh, the "You're So Ohio" book, that um, the best guest you had was Andy Griffith. Why why is that? Oh, Andy Griffith was, uh, I mean, he was just such a gentle man. Right. He had no, no pretension at all. This guy was like, you know, somebody, I, I think he would blush when somebody asked for an autograph. But I was at the Indiana State Fair doing my show, and I had to tell you that doing remote broadcasts were not my favorites. So I was at the Indiana State Fair with an audience of people there. Andy Griffith was a guest on the show. And he came in and we chatted for a long time. And we got all done and I thanked him for being there and all that. And uh, put a record on. And he said, uh, you don't mind if I stay around for the rest of your show, do you? And I said, well, no, I'd, I'd be happy with that. You know, let's, let's do it together. Right. And we did. And for a long time, uh, we kept correspondence back and forth. Well, it's it's still amazing to me when you tune into TV Land or even streaming platforms. You know, the Andy Griffith Show is still a popular program, even when it was launched. I, I feel like my dad had told me that it started in the 1950s. I mean, it's still a relevant show that's seen all the time. You know? Yeah, it was it was one of those. Uh, those rare finds at the time, you know, we had, we had a whole different form of entertainment back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, those shows, Andy Griffith and uh, Ozzie and Harriet and all those programs, 
We called those red, white, and blue shows. They had no profanity. They were all about life and, you know, life and uh, love and uh, family. And so uh, that's why they lived for so long. Well, and you know, one one show that I'm sure you came across uh, growing up uh, was uh, Twilight Zone. Did you watch that show? (laughs) I sure did. As a matter of fact, yeah. I wrote I wrote a script for Twilight Zone. Oh my and God! Was polite and was politely declined. But uh, yeah, I remember Twilight Zone. I had this this idea for a script. Uh, I'll tell you about it. It's kind yeah. of interesting. What uh, was your What was your premise? Uh, well, this guy had a terrible life. He had a terrible wife. He had a terrible job. He had a ter- he lived in a terrible town. Everything was just real crap. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And. And every night he would go to bed and he would have this dream that was completely opposite of his life. Everything was roses. I mean, he had a great wife and wonderful family and lived in the right place and his job was great. And Oh, my God, it was great. So every night he would go to bed an hour earlier to get into his dream. And finally, he was sleeping 12 hours and he was awake 12 hours. And one night in his dream, he went to a psychiatrist and the doctor said, what, what seems to be bothering you? And the guy said, well, I have these terrible dreams. Right. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> I see. I, I'm connecting he it could, now. There you go. He, could, he couldn't tell one from the other. Oh, that's right. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, the, the two episodes that come to my head now... Uh, that I love from that show um, was the guy who loved to read everything, and then the you know the nuclear bomb goes off and it kills everybody in the town uh, where he's he's the only one left and he's got all the books at his disposal. And then the the episode ends with his glasses breaking. I mean that's just oh yeah that's classic writing that, you know so that was classic. Well, and the you, one I like the the one I ahead. like so much, Jimmy, was Agnes Moorhead. Uh, she was a, a, a long-time actress, and she lived in a story-and-a-half farmhouse. And one night, uh, one evening, she heard this pop up in the attic. She went up there, and yeah. it was followed by another pop and another pop. You remember this episode? Oh, I'm I'm trying to recounter it. Uh, okay. Yeah. So she yeah. went up there, and she found a little flying saucer and little bitty men. And these little bitty men started firing laser guns at her and put welts on her ankles and all that. And she had a broom and she was trying to kill them. <laughs> and finally, she did. She killed every one of them. And the last one is laying there on his back. Uh-huh. And they zoom into his helmet. And on his helmet, it said, Andrews, United States Air Force. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. See, you know, it's it just takes a second to to connect the dots, but you know, yep. Twilight Zone was one of those uh, those groundbreaking shows, and I, I'm just hearing you know Rod Serling in my in my mind, you know, trying to oh, yeah. trying to do the opening sequence for uh, the year 2020 and everything that's happened so far. So yeah, yeah. But um, I, Don, I, I'm really curious too because you were on you were in um, the management for Wish TV for a while as well. Um, 
what was kind of your management style as far as like trying to handle conflicts and, and different things? Cause I've, I've dealt with several different managers and you know, there's different personalities to each one, but what, what qualities make up a good manager when it comes to media? Well, there's a, there's a formula I always followed that was called a Benjamin Franklin list. Yeah. And I don't know you know what that is or not, but you form two columns and they're kind of what if columns. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, this is the problem right here in column one. What if I did this? What would be the result? Column two. What if I did this, the direct opposite and you get to the bottom of it and you say, Oh, Logic says, I do this one. Right. And I, you sort of have to dispense with a lot of emotion. I mean, I had to fire some close friends sure. uh, in the business uh, because they weren't adhering to the policies. And, uh, you know, I was sorry to do it, but you know, I had to do it. Um, but, you know, making change in your life and and uh, in my speech, I talk about setting goals, and people say, oh, yeah, well, I've never set goals. I said, well, it's very simple. Take a legal pad, put five columns on it, and in the first column, list everything you want. In the second column, list if it's a monetary value on that, put the dollar amount down. In the third column, in 10 words or less, What's preventing you from doing that? Right. And in the fourth column, what would I change to make it happen? And the fifth column is how long? Okay. And so the only one you can really add up is the second column. And surprisingly, you'll find that all your wishes in your life don't add up to a lot of money. But for the first time in your life, you have made specific goals and solutions to problems that you never made before. Well, and, it, you know, my speech, is, it, my speech is called Positive Changes. So if you don't like that list the next day, tear it up, make another one. Well, and it, what you bring up is so important, too, because it's, it's sometimes, you know, the the underlying issue, right? It's not that I want this or this item is going to make me happy. It's I need to make these changes in my life to then be happier in the long term because of some underlying issue that's actually bothering me more, right? Yeah, help, uh, you know, happiness is the key to life. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, there are basic things that we want from life. Health, wealth, comfort, freedom, success, and happiness. Right. Those are the five things that we really want. And, and to each person... They're all different, you know. Like uh, happiness to you, to this person over here could be health. Happiness to that person could be wealth. Happiness to that person could be success. So it's it's all a different blend of things. But happiness is the key. I had somebody ask me the other day, a young young guy from one of our local community colleges. I was speaking to a group over there, and he said. Uh, what do you think the three most important things starting out in life are? Mm. And I said, uh, you know, I think they are location, vocation, and relationship. Mm. Figure out where, where you want to be for the rest of your life. Figure out what do you want to do when you get there? 
and figure out who do you want to do it with. And that last one could be nobody. Right. You know? It could be. Yeah. You could be a, a loner. You could, but those are the three most important things. Because most people will, you know, they'll be miserable. They'll be in a, in a climate that's winter. And they'll say, well, I want to move to a warmer climate. And 20 years later, they say, well, I really want to move to a warmer climate. And 20 years later, they'll say the same thing. And all of a sudden, life is over. Right. They should, they should have just said, okay, I'm going to overcome everything I have here that's preventing me from going to that warmer climate. I'm going to try it out. Well, and what um, enabled you to move the business from Indianapolis to Sanibel, Florida? Because that's, that's where you're currently located and have been for the past several years with the business. Yeah. Well, climate was first. Right. Uh, I got. I really. I really was depressed in wintertime in, in in Indiana, or I could have been Ohio or any any place in the Midwest or you know northern. Um, so so I decided that I I would function better in a warmer climate, and uh, originally, uh, we had bought a condominium and um, hired a manager for our business and. Uh, and, and uh, contracted to an office space in Phoenix, Arizona. And we were going to move there. Mm. And all of a sudden, I got this client in Florida, uh, in Fort Myers, which was a very big client. And uh, he said, why don't you move down here and handle all my marketing? And that was kind of a, a good omen. So I said, okay. We moved everything. My parents... I keep people, the whole business, everything, down to uh, Southwest Florida in 1981. Been there ever since. Well, and part of the deal was your house, right? They they were able to negotiate the house that you're currently living in. Is that correct? Or no? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, we had a lot of uh, steps, a lot of bonuses uh, here, and yeah, the home was one of them. Yeah. Well, I, I just love that story that you were able to, you know, negotiate that too. That's that's the Don Abbott that I know. So, I was just, uh, you know, you're able to get every kind of uh, every kind of perk along the way, which which is something I respect uh, about you. So, I tell you something in the negotiation process, Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, negotiation is is merely holding out longer than the guy you're talking to. Sure. Yeah. So uh, let's say, for instance, uh, I go into a bank and I say, uh, you know, I'd like to borrow $200,000. And the guy said, uh, well, let me look at your assets. And finally he says, well, Don, uh, based on everything, we can't, we can't lend you $200,000. And I say to him, you can't lend me $200,000. <laughs> and then, and then I shut up yeah. and it becomes very uncomfortable for him. And all of a sudden he will say, well, you know, we want to be flexible and we want to fulfill your needs. And, uh, but you know, it doesn't look like right now we can do it. And I say, you want to be flexible and fulfill my needs, but right now it doesn't look like you could do it. And I shut up. Right. 
And all of a sudden, he'll find a way to lend me that money. It's just and I don't have to. I don't have to find it for him at all. Well, it kind of goes back to uh, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but the uh, the Wolf of Wall Street when they're starting their business, the uh, Stratton Oakmont. Uh, oh yeah. One of the uh, one of the lines in the movie is the first guy to talk loses. <laughs> you know, so they're just yep. waiting for the deal to be made, and uh, it's a it's a classic scene in the movie. So going back to that old method, you're you're right. You're exactly right. And so. one of the things I talk about is ideal. Uh, in every situation, there is an ideal. So if I'm going to negotiate with somebody on a, let's say, a car, and I'll walk in, and on paper, now everything has to be on paper, yeah. and I'll walk in, and I will say, uh, okay, I want to buy that car out in the showroom, and uh, by the way, here, that's what's ideal. And on it, I have, here's what I want to pay for it, here's a little, 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 little. And he looks at it, and he says, uh, Oh, I don't think we could do that. I said, well, that's ideal for me if you could do that. What's ideal for you? And he'll say, well, let me explain that. No, no, I'm sorry. You have to write it down. Yeah. What do you mean? You write it down and you give it back to me. So he'll give it back to me and I'll say, oh, no, no, that's that's not even close to ideal. Let me show you this. And I write down again, making a little concession, and I give it back to him. It t- the process takes hardly any time. And what you've done, both parties have negotiated in writing. Well, and, and you know, I was I was just thinking about it. Uh, you know, one of the things that you did uh, in media as a manager, uh, it's a different kind of negotiation, but, you know, there's a lot of times you have to group uh, on-air talent together uh, and negotiate, oh, yeah. you know, who's going to do each role for a show. Um, yeah. In your opinion and with your background, is it possible for uh, a group of talent that works together to develop a chemistry? Or is that just something that has to kind of occur naturally for it to work? Oh, no. It, it, yeah, I, it's definitely possible. But the thing you have to watch out for is partnerships. Entering a partnership with someone is the chanciest thing you can do. So if, if, for instance, you want to form a group that's going to be, okay, it's going to be the Jim Kennedy production group, okay? I like the sound of that, Yeah. You're going to have to trust everybody in that group. And let me explain to you how this works. A guy one time told me how to clone a six-pack. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you've got six positions in the corporation. You have marketing, you've got uh, financing, you've got uh, accounting, you've got creativity, you've got the basically six. Right. You're going to head, you're going to be the head of all of that. So let's say that you're going to pay everybody, all these five people around you, you're going to pay them $10,000 each. So now you've got an overhead of $50,000. Okay? Uh-huh. Sure. But keep in mind, as the head of all this, you're going to, you're going to do 50% of the work. 
right. no matter how you cut it. So you have to pay yourself 50% of what they're making. So they're making 50, you're paying yourself 25. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. I'm, now, I'm following. If, if you raise their salary to 20,000, then you're going to make 50. Right. Because it's proportional. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you say to everybody going in, hey, you got to trust me with what I'm doing. Let me show you how this works. You're going to make this, and when you make more, I make more. Nothing is hidden. Right. And you prepare. key to. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say when, when you put it to your staff like that, it propels them forward because then they're motivated to do more work and it benefits everybody along the way. Oh, yeah. They're, they're right. motivated to make, they're, they're motivated to make themselves richer and make you richer. And that makes everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Jim, in my, in my speech, my speech is based on the word great, G R E A T. And that great breaks down to the five most important things in your life. And the G stands for generosity. The R is respect. The E is enthusiasm. The A is attitude. And the T is trust. And if you can build all five of those things into a relationship, you know that you found the right person. Well, and I, and I know that you love Aunt Betty very much. Uh, and I, I'm curious, you know, you, you've had a very extensive uh, media career, a lot of different opportunities available to you. How important was um, work-life balance to, to have that family time, even with a career? Oh, well, it was a challenge for me because when everybody else was working 40 hours, I was working 80. Right. But I, I, I think the greatest part of that, I'm from Betty's standpoint, was her understanding. Uh, And it all dealt back to, hey, Betty, if I make $100,000 a year, you're going to enjoy a $100,000 lifestyle. Right. It's it's the give and take. You know, (laughs) yeah, she would buy into that because if I got better, she got better. And uh, that that deals back to the cloning of a six pack. Mm-hmm. If I make a hundred thousand, you're going to live a hundred thousand dollar lifestyle. And she has, always, she's never been a person to sit down beside me and say, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Let me in on this. Da, 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 da. But she will stand aside and say, you know, I'm going to, without any problems, I'm going to allow you to spend your time doing that. Or not allow, but it's, I, I'm going to understand your time right. in doing that. And uh, I, I, I love to work. I just, I go crazy over work um, and organization and all that. And um, one, of my, one of my biggest thrills is when people come to me and say, hey, we're out of ideas. Do you have any? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I got some ideas. So that's, that's what makes life fun and interesting. Um, you know, I, I keep, um, I keep my uh, skills uh, honed. I keep my, uh, my enthusiasm 
and my uh, activity. You know, I'm I'm a, I fly an airplane in instrument conditions. I fly from here to Texas, and I don't think anything about it. And that's because every six months I go to flight safety and I have them ring me out and right. make me a better pilot. And I've done, you know, I've flown now for almost 60 years, believe it or not. What does it feel like to, to fly a plane? Can you describe it? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I did that book, uh, My Flight Affair. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's it's all about... Well, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a guy by the name of Norwood, and uh, in the premise to my book, I quote Mr. Norwood, and, and I'll share it with you. Sure. Because I fly, I laugh more than other men. I look up and see more than they. <laughs> I know how clouds feel. I know what it's like to have blue in my lap, and look down on birds to feel freedom in a thing called the stick. Wow. Who but I can slice between God's billowed legs and feel, then laugh and, and crash with his step? Who else has seen the unclimbed peaks, the rainbow secret, the real reason birds sing? Yeah. Because I fly, I envy no man on earth. Wow, that's that's really profound, man. I mean, I was thinking about it to uh, you know the other day. You can't have a fear of heights. That's definitely one thing that you get over quickly <laughs> I, with uh, with flying. I do, I do have a fear of heights. You Seriously? Put me on a ladder, oh, you put me on a ladder, and I go crazy. <laughs> uh, but if you put me at you put me at thirty thousand feet, I'm fine. You know, uh, what back in the in, in the days uh, in the sixties. When uh, WISH Radio was sold, and I needed to find a job, and that's right before I started the production company, I went to work for Beach Aircraft, and I went to work in their marketing department. Yeah. And I would fly from Indianapolis to Wichita uh, every week. They gave me a, a brand new Bonanza to do that in. And I remember... Uh, and they, they, they gave me that new bonanza, and I produced several events for them and new product introductions and all that. But I remember, and, and again, without boring you, uh, I'll read you a little thing about the trip. Absolutely. Let's go for it. What? While on loan to Beechcraft, I'd fly the bonanza over small flatland towns on my way to Kansas from Indy. On early gray winter mornings, I flew low to observe the day beginning for locals. I saw the lights in the windows of tiny houses where mothers were preparing their flock for school. Huh. Smoke from the chimney reminded me of the warmth and love of my own youth on the farm. I would throttle back for a moment not to miss a special Norman Rockwell view of downtown with a fresh coat of white on the ground. Older pickup trucks with dented fenders of character left their mark in the snow as they crossed the railroad tracks that ran right down the middle of Main Street. Mm. And then a shallow turn ushered them into their place in the local coffee shop parking lot. I remember wishing I could land and share a moment of conversation with those so fortunate to live there. But a few miles and a few minutes ahead, the experience would magically repeat itself. Those flights were amazing. Oh, boy. 
you really have to be there. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, you know, it's, um, it's not the most traditional uh, hobby that most people think of, but if somebody wanted to get involved and try flying, what would be your advice to them? Oh, my advice for them would be to go out to a, uh, an airport in a small community and I'm talking about maybe Sheridan or someplace like that, mm-hmm. and find find somebody who would train them for the first 10 hours in an, in an airplane with no radios and only stick and rudder, mm. and learn what the wind does to airplanes and what that's all about, and then come back and learn the technology of the modern cockpit. You know, it's amazing. I, I load a trip. From here to Indianapolis, I loaded on a chip in my on my computer in my office. I go out to the airport and I stick the chip in the in the uh, instrument panel of the airplane. Yeah, and it downloads everything all the way. I take off at about three hundred feet. I turn the autopilot on, and then I fly all the way to Indianapolis. And that autopilot navigates the whole trip, and all the way down to almost. 500 feet above the runway and I turn the autopilot off and land the airplane. That's what technology has done for us today. We used to fly those trips all by hand and uh, all by calculation on a paper map, but we don't do that anymore. Well, but my- I think if, if I were to advise anybody to go out and learn to fly, go out to that small field and take an introductory lesson and see if you really like it. And if you do, go for it. Well, and you brought up uh, technology. Mom was telling me a story that uh, Bob Gregory was te- was telling her the other day. We were at a high school basketball game at Carmel High School, and Bob was there, and he said that um, you had gotten a cell phone because he remembered you when, when you worked together, uh, that you had gotten one yeah. of the first cell phones. And that the station manager had gotten the same one that you did to kind of one-up you. Uh, and he called you on the cell phone to yours uh, and said, you know, hey, Don, I got the cell phone. And uh, you said, uh, yeah, hold on. I have a call waiting on the other line. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I so, remember that. Yeah. So, so you've Bob always Gregory, been a... How's, how's he doing? Last time I saw him, uh, he looked great. He was upright, you know, walking fine without any kind of assistance. Um I mean, but good Lord, he's been on the air for a long time. I think he still oh, steps yeah. in for Kevin every now and again. So Yeah. Well, but. It was fun. Those days in broadcasting in Indianapolis were fun. One of the things that made him the most fun was that everything was live. We didn't have any, right. you know, we didn't have any videotape. We didn't have anything. And I, I remember working in radio, and I would uh, pre-tape, 5.30 to 6 in the evening because at 5.30 I had to go over to TV and get ready to do a weather show. Yeah. And all that was live. Oh, yeah. It was fun. Well, yeah. and people had to be more talented in those days, knowing that it's live and, you know, everything you do is being captured at that moment. So uh, oh, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, it's really impressive to to watch those old tapes of the of the original broadcasters, Mike Ahern among them. Uh, you know, Debbie Knox is still on TV with CBS four here in town. So it's really, you know, as much as, uh, 
you know, we want young blood to be inserted into the to the business. These veterans still know how to get it done day to day. So, yeah. Well, Jimmy, you've done a wonderful job with your career so far. And, uh, you know, you've got a lot ahead of you and a lot of positive things ahead of you. And I appreciate it. For that, the reason for that is you've got a positive attitude. And that's the key to your happiness, you know? Yeah. As long as you maintain that. Yeah. You know, I, I have these people I walk in, I'll say, how you doing? Oh, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> you know what I tell them? Hanging in there is better than hanging. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, and yeah. we just we just keep going. Uh, Dom, we'll we'll end on this because I'm really curious to know your answer. You've done a lot of different things. We we've alluded to that throughout this interview, but um, looking back at all that you have done and accomplished, both professionally and personally, um, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, man. I I guess I'd like to be remembered as he tried to give something. He always tried to give something. Yeah. And in the process, you know, you make, you know, I, I always wind up my speech and I say, you know, I stand up here for 59 minutes and 59 seconds and I dish out all this good medicine. And the best part of it is I always spill some on me. I think the better you can be, the better the people around you can be. And uh, I like to give. You know, that first word in in great is generosity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important, man, because if you give something, unbeknownst to you, sometime down along the pike, you're going to get something twice as good back. And uh, so... Yeah, I'd like to, uh, you know, what they're probably going to print on my tombstone is, here lies Don Abbott. He'll be here in a minute. <laughs> that's, that's uh, you know what, we'll, we'll end on that note. Don, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear your knowledge, to, uh, you know, get, get to know a little bit about your professional career. You know, I, I've only heard stories, but to hear it from the man himself, it's, it's been a pleasure, sir. Uh, Jim, it's great to be with you, and I wish you the absolute best. Be sure to give your mom a big hug for me. She is such a delightful person. I just wish you best. I wish you well. Be safe, and uh, let's talk again sometime down the road oh, the bike, okay? You're welcome anytime on my show. Don Abbott, he is the author of You're So Ohio, Memories of a Midwestern Dreamer, as well as the other book here that I have, uh, my Flight Affair, Adventures of a Master Pilot. Don Abbott, thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon.